podcast for those who suffer, which is everyone. It's a space where we can speak honestly about what it feels like to be in desolate places without losing hope. Welcome to In the Thicket. Hey, everybody. Hello. Hello. Hey. How's it going? Good. Welcome to this episode. I'm so excited because I get to see your face, Dave. It's so nice. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's my uh, my pleasure, and I really enjoy seeing you again, of course, and and uh, so happy to be here with you all. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's great to have you. How are you, ladies, doing this week? Good. Too it's bad. Lots of snow um, yep. since the last time we recorded. So, mm-hmm. and it's we're squarely in Lent, so that's great mm-hmm. um yeah it's going it's going all right so far lent <laughs> if i had to ask you this question okay let me ask you this because this is this is definitely something that is pertinent for for dave for dr david D'Souza. um if you had to choose a kind of beer what would mm. you say if you had to drink one beer for the rest of your life mm. obviously uh-huh. not all the time but like one kind, what would you choose? That's funny, you know, that uh, only you would ask me that question. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that I like beer a lot. Uh, the, the answer is very easy for me. It's called the West Letter in 12. Okay? Yeah! And, and the reason being, it's a very rare beer. Mm-hmm. And, but the reason being is that it is a, um, it's considered one of the best in the world. And it is made in Belgium by Cistercian monks. Mm-hmm. And and it's been by the same community for hundreds of years. That's cool. and uh, the history behind it is is so unique and it's so beautiful, and uh, and I love how the Cistercian monks use that uh, to for the glory of God. They use that work to bring people to God, mm-hmm. and people travel all over the world to come to their monastery. And recently, people offered them millions of dollars to expand their beer making process. Yeah. And they said no. And the reason why is they mm. want people to come to the monastery. Mm. Right? They want people to experience God in their monastery uh and 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 then have the beer from there. And then they could take the limit amount you can take home yeah. but um you know I I just love how for them it's all about bringing people to God through their work and and that's just so that great. history it just makes it yeah. even more special that's so awesome. that means yeah. one day I'm gonna have to go there and actually get one of those exactly of those I'll come with you man I had yeah, one yeah. At, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm taking you with me here yeah yeah totally <laughs> I had one at um uh there's a pub across from St. Patrick's in Toronto on McCall Street mm-hmm. called Sin mm-hmm. and Redemption and oh, I yeah. went there by myself for supper one night and they had some West Lettron and I had one and it's like mm-hmm. $33 for a little oh, wow that mm-hmm. it's like but you know because someone went to the monastery to get that that's little right. bottle exactly yeah. exactly and it was good yeah. yeah so that I would probably pick that one too or a really mm-hmm. nice oatmeal stout how about you Rachel if you had to pick one I pick? feel like, well, now how can any, I don't know. I, it sounds like the beer to pick. What else That's are right. I going to pick? Um, yeah, you're anti-Catholic. We're going to have to go on a, on a, on a group yeah. visit there. We're going to have to yeah. take a group trip, right? That's right. Yeah. 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 Really, Podcast pilgrimage. That's mm-hmm. right. Oh my gosh. That would be awesome. That would be What awesome. a cool thing. I'm te- I'm definitely going to look this up after our episode. Um <laughs> Yeah, no, that sounds really good, but probably I don't I don't know, I'm really boring. Probably something like a Stella or a Heineken or something like along okay. those All right. those okay. lines. You okay. Know? Nicole, how about you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, it's hard. I feel like my beer tastes they just change. So for a while I was like like amber beers only ever, always. Oh. But then there's one, I think it's an IPA, it's um from Collective Arts called Hazy State. And it's like an unfiltered IPA. I think it's an IPA, I could be wrong. Mm. Anyways. But it's really good. And I've been enjoying that one lately too. So okay. I don't know. There's Sweet. a beer. Um, oh my gosh. I, I don't know Toronto well at all, but um, it's anyways, somewhere in Toronto, somewhere very, if I mentioned everyone would know exactly what I'm talking about, yeah. but I don't know what it's called. Cause I can't remember. Um, but we ordered this beer called, I think it was an in-house or just a local beer. I don't remember how local it was, but it's called hopped and confused. Oh it's, yeah really mm. good like it's very hoppy obviously but it's like real it was very good so I remember that being kind of different than what mm-hmm. I what I normally drink but I really enjoyed it I don't mm. know if I drink it for the rest of my life though okay yeah, yes right. yeah see West Western all the way I, yeah well I'm so impressed <laughs> yeah. with Ontario too like I think in the past five to ten years Ontario's breweries have really exploded mm-hmm. and yeah. they have some really really great uh, local brews here and and yeah it's it's wonderful 
Totally. Yeah, but it's fun. I'm really hoping. But it's that... unfortunate we can't go to bars these days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> soon, soon, hopefully. We could do a virtual right. a virtual taste uh, testing. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, you and Nicole actually, I can. <laughs> right. Yeah. We're Except still that in... it's Lent. Usually, I don't drink yeah. alcohol during Lent, so I'll I'll suffer with you and you know in the time. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. So on to the topic of the day. Um, yeah. <laughs> Just from for, beer to from beer to euthanasia. Okay, right. that's. Um, but uh, today, uh, today is the second in a series that we're doing for Lent. So we wanted to talk about euthanasia, and if you want to listen to kind of the whys behind, um, for you know why each of us felt like it was important to do this series, you can go back a week and listen to our previous episode, um, and that will give a, a lot more context. But uh, but in general, there's uh, some legislation that's before Parliament right now. So they're they're kind of debating this bill on expanding uh, euthanasia um, and you know striking down some some quote unquote barriers to euthanasia. So we felt like it would be an important time to to really hear from some different voices who are um, who are kind of you know, in, in the mix of, of things. And one of those voices that definitely came to mind was, um, was yours, Dave. So you are a medical doctor and, uh, and I'll let you maybe just start by telling us a little bit about yourself, like where you are, what you do kind of, and especially in terms of like palliative care, caring for those who are, you know, nearing death or are older or whatever, like what, what that's been like for you and, and maybe why, why that was kind of an area of medicine that, that you wanted to get into. Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks again for having me on the, on the show. That's really nice that you thought of me. I certainly, uh, I mean, I'm really happy to, to uh, accept the invitation, but uh, you know, there's many wonderful voices out there and, and that's nice that you thought of me. So, um, you know, I, uh, I've been a physician now for, I think, almost 10 years and uh, graduated as a family doctor. Uh, but I, uh, my, my kind of true passion is actually working with the uh, underprivileged populations, particularly in developing countries. And I spent um, some time working in Africa and different places in, in the world, some slum areas, and um, uh, spent, uh, did a fellowship in tropical diseases and in global health. So I could hopefully focus a little bit more of my career on that. Um, and uh, you know, when I did a lot of my traveling and it came back home, I realized that look, we have such a vulnerable population here in our own city of Toronto. And I, uh, you know, there's not much of HIV and TB. You know that, you know, I mean, there, there is an HIV population, but certainly TB is is something that I've I've been focused on when I my time in Africa. But it's not a big uh, problem here. Mm. Uh, I do teach on the subject at, at, the, at the university, so I keep that up to date, but um, I really wanted to focus on sort of the needs of our community here and the needs of the vulnerable people over here in Toronto. And, and so I really thought about uh, working with the elderly. So, um, you know, when I first started my practice in Toronto, I, uh, I got into care of the elderly, uh, working with nursing homes across the city and with palliative care. And I realized these are two areas that are in in such high, high need, um, we know that uh, there is uh, very few pe- uh, very few physicians actually um, uh, focus their practice in palliative care. Mm-hmm. We know that there is a high demand and need for palliative care services that's only growing and growing as uh, the baby boomer generation is getting a little older. Right. And uh, and so you know, un- unfortunately, there's th- that wait list is is getting longer and longer. Um, and, and that's something that I, you know, really hoping that we can address as a community. Mm-hmm. So right now I, I focus my practice on care of the elderly, palliative care, uh, particular, uh, mainly in, in the GTA and in Scarborough. Mm-hmm. So if you know the Toronto area. Yeah. And that's, um, I mean, I, I know that that's a passion of yours of like supporting vulnerable populations and, um, and like some of the medical kind of mission stuff that you, that you've done before is really beautiful. And it's interesting to even name that that's a vulnerable population, because I think a lot of people might, might kind of miss that, you know, or a lot of people mm-hmm. might not realize how mm-hmm. much of a lack of access there is to palliative care. Um, so maybe what's been your experience of, of that, you know, of, okay. um, of kind of seeing what a huge challenge it is, like what a demand mm. there is for it and, and kind of the shortage of that. Mm-hmm. It's a good question. You know, in my time in Africa and in developing countries, 
uh, I find that you know the suffering that I'm seeing there is it's a very stark, it's a very visceral kind of suffering. People are are, are suffering from a great deal of physical pain. You know, mm. uh, you know, it could be advanced uh, diseases. I've I've seen people with rheumatoid arthritis that is literally disabling their entire hands completely within mm. a few short years. People with uh, malnutrition who are uh, who are uh, who are you know dying in the process of dying because of malnutrition. Uh, you know, malaria associated diseases, you know, there's, there's a very visceral physical suffering that we see in the third world or the developing country, shall I say. In, in Toronto or in Canada, uh, I, I find it's very different. Um, you know, we obviously have a, you know, relatively uh, a good healthcare system in comparison to many of these other countries. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we're, a lot of the, those kind of advanced extreme diseases we don't see. However, you know what I find in my in my practice, and in especially with care uh, care of the elderly, uh, and and definitely within the palliative care uh, and my palliative practice is there is a great deal of suffering, but it's it's a little bit different. Certainly, there's that physical sense, but there is also a, a lot of psychological suffering mm-hmm. and a lot of mental health suffering and a lot of loneliness, mm-hmm. and this goes into the reasons why a lot of people uh, think that. You know, palliative care. Sorry, think that euthanasia is a way uh, is a way out of that suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people are thinking about euthanasia because they feel very lonely. They feel that no one really cares about them anymore. People are thinking that you know uh, they feel abandoned. There is a fear, a sense of a loss of function in today's world. You know, maybe they used to be a high functioning engineer or a doctor, and now they can't do that anymore. There's a, a, a sense of a loss of ability. And it also, you know, that all comes down to a sense of loss of community, mm-hmm. a sense of loss of, of identity, and a sense of loss of dignity. Mm-hmm. And these are all the reasons that I'm seeing in our community here that lead people to think that euthanasia is a way out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm reminded of, um, so I'm a, I'm a neurologic music therapist um, as, as by trade, I guess. And uh, I remember that a, a client I had years ago, and I'll, I'll change, you know, and I'm sure if we talk about cases, we were talking about this earlier, you know, we'll change any identifying information so that we're protecting confidentiality here. But um, uh, working with somebody who was um, kind of chronic, had a lot of chronic pain and, and mental health um, issues and was in kind of long-term care. And, um, and this person just didn't get out of bed and, um, and the goal, you know, what we were trying to help work on was, you know, using music to help motivate and, and, um, to get, get the person out of, like, get the person kind of alert and awake and then get them walking and so on. And, and it was very inconsistent whether we were successful or not. Um, but then I started noticing a pattern that the days that this patient would actually get out of bed and, and walk were days that a family just at days that it would be like the day after a family member had come to visit. And mm-hmm. pretty much that was what the only thing that would make this person have that will to kind of, to try to keep living and try to keep getting out of bed was, um, was having a visit. And it started to kind of clue me in, I think kind of what you're saying, Dave, that there's this, this sense of loneliness. And I, I think that like we get our sense of value um, like, like I know that I'm value as a human person because other people love me and care about me and, and they show this through their presence. But if no one is showing me that through their, their presence and they're not with me, I start to think that I, I'm not value. I'm not worth living. And then once you, once you think that you're not worth living and that you're just a burden, then that's tough, you know? So, um, mm-hmm. yeah. And it is, I think having, having worked a little bit in, you know, with older adults, uh, it's, it's kind of, it's just really it's really sad. The loneliness is kind of um, everywhere, you know? So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. You know, we all get that sense of loneliness here and there in our lives, you know? Uh, but I think at, uh, when we're a little older, uh, sometimes it can be, that experience can be a lot more difficult to, to deal with for many reasons. But when you're in a nursing home and, and particularly during this time in COVID, right? Mm. Yeah. Where Gosh. even family visitors uh, are not even allowed to visit you. Family and friends aren't allowed to yeah. visit you that kind of sense of loneliness has been uh, uh, exacerbated. And, mm. and that has been going on now for a year. I've, I've really seen that. And, 
and and mental health really has been affected significantly across uh, at least in my practice i've seen that uh, but it really goes to show that that sense of community is so so very very important for everyone mm -hmm. especially our elderly and they need to know that we we affirm them right they need to know that we love them that you know that they're worth something they yeah. they have that full dignity that they had you know uh, even before they were you know, uh, before they were sick, maybe now they're having some dementia, their their me memory loss, maybe they have some difficulty with their bowels, they might need a, a diaper, they might need assistance for, for their basic daily habits. And people feel a lot of people feel ashamed from that. Mm. And we need to let them know that, that they shouldn't and that we love them just the same. And they're valuable. And they're, and they're dignified, not simply because they can't do those things anymore, but because of who they are. Mm -hmm. yeah um <clears throat> I worked in law for a little while and I remember working with someone who they said to me like they were they were fairly young they were still in their 30s I think and they said to a group of us like man the worst the worst thing for me at, like that could ever happen is just to lose my capacity to function physically and basically they were talking about getting old they were like you know that's like the worst thing ever like yeah. I'd rather die and I remember thinking like whoa, that is really like that is, but I, I mean, I, you know, and as I've gotten older and matured a little bit, I'm like, okay, yeah, I understand why people feel like that because there's such a sense of, um, I think, especially in the, in North America, like we put so much of our value on our, our capacity to, to do things and to totally. contribute and to be independent even. Right. And, mm -hmm. um, there's, there's not, yeah, there's so much value that we put in that, that, that when we lose it, it's like, it is a loss of identity almost. And you have to sort of, yeah. mm -hmm. um, you know, which is where for us as Catholics, our faith can come in because our identity we know is supposed to be in, in the fact that we are children of God and that mm -hmm. is everybody, you know, mm -hmm. and even mm -hmm. in the, even in the presence of somebody who's like, I think, I think there's an element of, of the Catholic faith that we need to kind of reclaim and re-realize, which is the, which is the, um, the fact that the presence of somebody who is suffering actually is a gift in itself because it draws out of other people, their own vocation to love. Like mm -hmm. if I'm in the presence of somebody who's suffering, my response of that should be, it needs to be love, whatever that, whatever mm -hmm. that looks like. And that's actually like the fundamental meaning of who I am is to like give myself in love, you know? Yeah. So being able to, to like reorient and reframe how how kind of yeah. we're, we're looking at, but, but yeah, but being like, even myself, I'm like, I can go to the washroom. I can do all of those things, but, but um, like with chronic illness, you know, like I've like my dad cooks for me all the time, you know, mm -hmm. and even that is like hard. And there is a mm -hmm. place in me that is so resistant to that. Like, oh, mm -hmm. you know, so I can, like, I'm wondering, Dave, maybe if you have any stories of, um, of particular experiences of where, like maybe where people are getting close to death or, or just with that kind of, um, loss of, you know, independence and things like that, where, mm -hmm. where either it was really hard for them or, mm -hmm. um, or, or even where you saw people kind of embrace that and what that, what that looked like. Sure. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, a big component of that is, is pain, true mm -hmm. pain is, is can can be very difficult to deal with absolutely yeah. mm -hmm. and it's hard for under, other people to understand unless you're in that situation and that's why it's so important that we have the that as a society as a community we put the resources in to help train palliative care physicians and provide for palliative care physicians allow family doctors to have the training and encourage them to assist people uh, in that process right mm -hmm. Um, can we, sorry, yeah. I know that that's a really good question that you asked Aaron, but just yeah. for our listeners who maybe don't know exactly what palliative care entails, oh. could we just mm -hmm. define that real quick before we, sure. yeah. So it, right in a nutshell, palliative care means to care for a patient's, uh, to treat their suffering. Okay. And that could be physical, mental, spiritual, psychological. Okay. So as a palliative care physician, I identify that, that entire what is what, what that patient's suffering is all about right the physical dimension the mental dimension the emotional and the spiritual dimension mm -hmm. and as a palliative physician my job is to treat the patient and help alleviate that suffering it is not to kill 
the patient as a, a means to end the suffering. It is to treat the suffering itself. Mm. Right. Thanks. Yeah. yeah, that's a helpful definition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah because the, the, the idea then is, is somebody who is dying. So we're not, we're not looking at that to that point, you know, at, at a cure or, you know, trying to alleviate, or, you know, sort of fix the illness, but we're not also trying to hasten death. So it's this middle zone of like, well, okay, what is the suffering, the particular suffering that this person is experiencing and being mm-hmm. able to treat that? Thanks. Yeah, that's very helpful, actually. Well, in palliative care, you know, there are uh, many people who have chronic diseases that have uh, decreased mm-hmm. life expectancy. It may not be three months or one month. You know, it could be five years or longer. Mm-hmm. Right? But we know that they may have a life-limiting disease uh, and that we can intervene at this stage. Right? Mm-hmm. We don't have to wait five or 10 years on the road, intervene this stage and, and work with them over that time, right? journey with them over that time or five or 10 years or whatever the time may be. Mm-hmm. And to work with them to treat that, that suffering that they may have, the physical, that uh, emotional, all, all those other things I talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a journey with a lot of these patients, right? And, and we need to always reassess. And it's a dynamic process, right? You know, patient sufferings do change, of course, uh, as the disease progresses, uh, but also as their own lives change, right? As their function changes, maybe, you know, maybe yesterday they were able to go to, to the washroom themselves, maybe today they can't. Mm-hmm. And so it is a dynamic process and something that as physicians, we need to journey with people in that time. And a lot of people say, well, you know, uh, what's the life expectancy? Is it one month, two months? You know, and, and we do have some indicators that we can use for that. Uh, rough indicators, um, uh, and it's it's those indicators are more helpful, particularly for cancer diagnoses. But um, in many cases, we don't have great indicators, mm-hmm. and uh, and you know honestly, only God knows. And mm-hmm. uh, and so um, we need to journey with those patients in that dynamic process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder if um, if you might be able to describe for us a little bit about um, what a good death can be. Because I, sure, I think sure. there's kind of a, there's kind of a, like, it's easy to look at death as just being like horrible and a whole path of suffering and pain and loss of control that eventually ends up in, you know, hmm. in death. And like to see that process as being just, just hugely awful, you know, which it can be, um, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm, I'm wondering if you mm-hmm. might be able to, yeah, share a little bit about that. Well, you know, I, I think first and foremost, you know, when you're talking about that, we have to realize that. Uh, death is inevitable. We all will go through that process. Right? And with that, there is going to be a component of suffering. Absolutely. Right. Um, and um, I think for a lot of people, uh, you know, when we're, when we're talking about the euthanasia agenda, we, we're looking at, uh, we're looking at it as a way to escape suffering. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think first and foremost, when I think of a good death, you know, uh, I, I think you, you know, the person needs to understand that those two things are, are part and parcel of being a human being and, and the human condition. And that, um, uh, you, know, I'm not, I, you know, when we're looking at a good death, I don't mean to say that, you know, someone may have a lot more suffering than another and that one way is different, is, is a better death than the other. But I think, mm-hmm. you know, the acceptance of that human condition is very, very important uh, about understanding what a good death is. Um, I had, there's a patient I had, this was, he passed away maybe three, three, four years ago. And he was on the wait list to see a palliative care doctor for over two months. Mm-hmm. He has, um, uh, he had a chronic kidney disease. His kidneys were shutting down and he was on dialysis for a number of years at that point. Um, but he also had a leg amputation due to severe uh, uh, diabetes mm-hmm. um, and they had to amputate one leg and you know, the diabetes caused an infection. So they had to amputate that. He was in a wheelchair. He lived with his, his wife and had no other family in the area. And uh, at that point, you know, he was very, very depressed as well. And he decided not to continue on with his dialysis treatment. Um, and so, you know, when you stop going to dialysis, usually the death process, um, you know, accelerates pretty quickly uh, because the kidneys uh, uh, are, in, the, in his case, the kidneys were shut down. So, um, I did see him after two months and on the wait list and I saw him and he was literally at death's door and he was in severe, severe pain and uh, a lot of mental suffering as well. And the first thing he said to me was, 
oh, you're the palliative conductor, great. Um, can you provide made for me, mm-hmm. right? And that really, really struck <laughs> me. I, I was really, you know, uh, I was very touched by that because I, I saw in him a desperate need for comfort, a desperate mm-hmm. need for someone to address, at least in this case, primarily his physical pain. And certainly, mm-hmm. of course, the, the emotional component. And I did tell him that I, I don't do that. But I did tell him that there's so many options he has for his, for his pain management. And uh, he was really surprised because he said, well, I thought, I, I thought there was no one to help me with pain. And I thought my only option was uh, either I die at home with no one there or I access or I get made. Mm-hmm. He didn't know that palliative care is an option. And I think that's so important in this society where, you know, mm-hmm. we don't, we lack palliative care services. We need to have, and people do have significant physical suffering for months, maybe even years without access to those services. So in the discussion with MAID, we always need to talk about palliative care and making sure that people have palliative care services. Now, in this particular case for, for this gentleman, um, we did start uh, a lot of pain medications. We started medications for his mental health. Um, his symptoms were much, much better controlled. He, he immediately withdrew his request for euthanasia when he realized that there mm. are options for his pain and that someone would accompany him during this time. And that's a big mm. thing because he thought he would have to die alone in his house and that his, him and his wife would have no medical help and he thought this would be a very lonely process and so i accompanied him during that time it it was about two or three months uh, of him passing away at home and he was he was comfortable and he passed away in the end with his wife by his side Mm. so you know to me that was you know i would say that was a good death uh again it's hard for me to to uh, put an exact definition of that good death, yeah. but, but, um, you know, I, I think, you know, and just to be, uh, to be a little bit clear on that, his decision not to go on with dialysis is not the equivalent of euthanasia. Okay? Mm-hmm. Right. He, he decided not to take that, continue on with that treatment and he passed away by natural means. So that's mm-hmm. not euthanasia. Um, but he was comfortable, uh, at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did accept his situation and, and dis, you know, accepted his suffering, but, you know, there is a, a community responsibility okay, in a good debt, right? Uh, we have a responsibility to, you know, to journey and to really work with people who are end of life, to not neglect them. We have mm-hmm. a responsibility. So I think, you know, when we talk about good debt, it is a responsibility from our point of view as well. We have to be there to assist mm-hmm. our elderly as they go through this very, very challenging process mm-hmm. and this natural, natural course. Yeah. So, so it's a two-way street. And I think if, if done well, it is, it is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. This, the term that came to my mind was this term we use in sort of evangelization um, you know, verbiage, like anyone who's involved in ministry, we all as Catholics are called to evangelize, but you know, anyone who's involved in direct ministry, we, we, we all have heard this term intentional accompaniment, you know? And so it's Mm. this idea that we, yeah, exactly what you're saying. Like in the spiritual life, you walk alongside someone as they grow in their journey of faith, as they, because it's a process, it's a dynamic process, exactly like how you said. And Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking, you know, that, that's really what we're called to, that's what community is. Like community isn't slapping sort of programs onto things or, or, you know, or, or it's not concepts, it's people Mm -hmm. coming alongside people, you know, and that is what Aaron was talking about because that requires sacrificial love. Like that requires time that requires, um, listening and presence and, uh, choosing to do an area of medicine, like palliative care, where you are in service of others or volunteering, you know, whatever it might be, it requires people to make that sacrifice for others. Yeah. Um, and that's a challenge. I think the Lord is, is highlighting for us as people Mm -hmm. of God, as people of faith, that, that there's a need here and we have to assess 
what our capacity is to contribute to that need, you know, wherever mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. are in our lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and I think, you know, it's a good point. And um, I don't think we need to look far for that, right? I mean, yeah. I think all of us, you know, we can talk about, you know, uh, sort of doing a lot of things that you're doing, which is amazing, doing these podcasts, which is amazing. A lot of people, though, you know, may not be doing podcasts, but there's ways they can help in their own circles, right? I'm sure they know they have a, you know, a, a, a sick grandmother or grandfather yeah. maybe going to visit them or speaking with them, or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they have a, a sister or brother who are, who are, who have some sort of life limiting this disease or going through a mental health issue, you know, accompanying yeah. them, you know, making sure they know that they're loved and that you're open to, to, you know, to, uh, you know, journeying with them. I think that can be, can, can go far, uh, you know, can go far away to, Mm-hmm. Uh, help with people suffering absolutely mm-hmm. yeah totally yeah. yeah um that's actually even just a, a a good point to let people know that we have on our website in the thicket um there's a section there of things that that people can do or get involved in so um, both on kind of the political end of things and you know signing petitions and stuff but then also in terms of like community um community organizations that you know, people can choose to get involved with where they're visiting the elderly or, you know, the sick or things like that. So I'd encourage people to, to, to take a look at that and, and choose something, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and one other point on that Mm -hmm. is something that we all can do is pray for people who are dying, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, uh, one thing that has been near to my heart is the divine mercy, uh, Mm -hmm. divine mercy, um, uh, uh, your chaplet. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, you know, Jesus promised to St. Faustina that those who pray for those people who are dying, who are passive, uh, who, are, who are in the process of dying, those mm-hmm. people will receive, the people who are dying will receive a special, special grace from the Lord. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, you know, with that kind of message and, and, uh, and assurance from Jesus, you know, if we know someone who is dying, we really should pray for them and pray that chaplet for them. I think it, it, mm-hmm. it obviously, Will do so much for them and they may not even know it yeah 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 i mean maybe i can um i can swing us in a little bit of a different direction here um so we can make sure we hear from you on this because i know this has also been near and dear to your heart is um is looking at kind of the the conscience rights of yeah. um, physicians and other healthcare professionals so i'm wondering if um like what that process has been like with having you know made come into effect while you're you know going through your your medical studies and, and becoming a, a physician and um and how how that's affected you whether you've kind of felt pressured at any point or worried with respect to your career or what what that's been like um and also as part of that maybe to because you you highlighted that there's a distinction for example between refusing certain treatments because you know in the co- in the course of someone's um treatment of, of a disease and and what made medical assistance in dying what that actually is so maybe to, to share because sure, i don't think we've actually sure. described what that is for people sure. and what's being expected of doctors to do in right. that process of, of right. made okay let, let's talk about that first you know the distinction um you know there's definitely a lot of confusion about what made is in the society you know sometimes people will go into hospital especially if you go in with an elderly and the first thing they'll ask you is or one of the first things they may ask you is, um, if your heart were to stop beating, would you like CPR? If you stop breathing, would you like intubation with a, th- a, a tube down your throat to help you breathe? Okay. And uh, if you, people are worried that if they say no to those things, no for CPR, no, no for intubation, for having some, some, a machine breathe for you, that that means euthanasia. It does not. Okay. This is something that is a common misconception, you know, uh, and, and oftentimes I, I, for a lot of patients, I do not recommend CPR. Okay. You know, CPR is meant for people, in my opinion, to, uh, who are, have a, maybe a, an illness that may, may affect their heart. And if you resuscitate them through CPR, that, uh, they may recover quite significantly. Okay. Uh, that's kind of a general concept, right? But certainly, if you decide not to go through that, um, you know, and let the process, the the illness continue and and through its natural natural uh, natural course, some people might pass away. But that is through a natural means. So I have patients, for example, who have 
who are in the later stage of, of their disease, maybe with cancer or severe heart conditions, who I think very reasonably decide not to have CPR. Okay. Because the chance of CPR to be successful, number one, would be is very limited, very minimal. Number two, number two, even if they were to, to be resuscitated, their life expectancy would still be very, very, very low. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so saying no to CPR or some of those life extending uh, uh, interventions is not the same as euthanasia. In euthanasia, there is a direct, a direct uh, intervention with the goal of ending that person's life, okay? Mm-hmm. A direct means to end the person's life, okay? With palliative care, I may give a medication in proportion to a person's pain and suffering, okay? To treat the suffering, that's the intention, okay? Mm-hmm. My intention would never be to kill the patient with that medication. And therefore, the medication I would give would be at a dose that's proportional to their physical pain mm-hmm. or their symptom. Right. In, in euthanasia, I would maybe change the dose or give them other medications in combination with another, with, in combination in order to end that person's life. That it would be the goal in euthanasia. So there's the difference. Right. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. And refusing a life prolonging intervention is not the same as euthanasia. Again, euthanasia is the direct intention to kill or take another human's life with the medication. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Okay. Which now as doctors, it falls on a, if it falls on a doctor's shoulder to, to do or to carry out that intervention, mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. is where Aaron's question about, you know, yeah. be, you know, pre the legalization of euthanasia and post the legalization of euthanasia, like how has practicing medicine, even training and all these things changed? Um, and what are those kinds of pressures that doctors who, who have major moral disagreements and, and conscience right. disagreements with this, what are, what are you guys facing right now? Well, you know, that's, that's a great question. And things have been changing literally in this, in this area by the month. Okay. Yeah. You know, when euthanasia was legalized several years ago, I, I, when the law was struck down, let me put it that way, yeah. um, that it made it a criminal, uh, a part of the criminal code uh, to conduct euthanasia. I think that was in 2016, I, if I can remember correctly. Um, at that point in time, the, uh, you know, at least the medical community was told that this would be for very, very small and very few cases, okay? Mm-hmm. And that most people would not qualify and that there would be special assessments and that uh, doctors who disagreed with that would not have to be part of that in any way, okay? So there was this kind of assurance from everyone, whether it was the political or the medical community, the, the leadership medical community, that, yeah. you know, that our conscious rights would be protected, that patients would be, you know, would, would also be protected from uh, abuse of this, that very few people would be, um, uh, would be, uh, would even qualify. But just in a few years, we can clearly see that's not the case. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and they're changing the law so quickly with this new bill, C7, uh, C7 I believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that process would be make it even more accessible. So in this new bill, they're saying that they're going to remove the requirement for reasonably foreseeable death. Okay. Initially, there was a requirement for that. Um, but you know, I've experienced many cases where patients did not have a reasonable foreseeable death, and yet were still accessed to euthanasia. So now they're just removing that requirement completely because I think they knew already that it, it, it wasn't being taken seriously. Mm-hmm. honestly. And then there is a waiting period, a 10-day waiting period from request, okay, to actually taking, uh, taking, uh, going ahead with euthanasia procedure, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. And, and the reason they have this 10-day waiting period is, well, maybe the person is going to change their mind. I have, I have always said that, first of all, 10 days don't, it doesn't even make sense. If someone has a severe depression, right? right? Mm-hmm. If you know anybody in your life who has anxiety, depression, you know, people don't get over these things in 10 days. Mm-hmm. It takes months, maybe years, and sometimes people have a chronic depression, right? So to even have a ten-day waiting period is 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 you know I think ludicrous. Uh, ten days is such a small yeah. insufficient, yeah. really. Mm-hmm. But now they're going to remove that, okay, uh, with the new Bill C seven. And then the third thing that they're thinking of of doing is is allowing for uh, people to pre-consent for it, so consent with advanced directives, 
Right. And this would really affect things, especially in, in my nursing home where I have many patients with dementia. I do have multiple patients who their families have even requested euthanasia for them. But I've told them it's against the law. The patient cannot consent because they have significant dementia. They can't even understand what euthanasia is. But now if this law goes through, it will open the gateway for people to allow advanced directives, have them say, I, I would like euthanasia if I were to get dementia or I wouldn't be able to. And then at that point, they would, you know, they would go undergo euthanasia at that point. So this is all very, very concerning. And, and from a physician's point of view, I mean, this is a, a huge concern from my point of view in terms of medical care, obviously, but um, our conscience rights have not been, uh, have not been, uh, uh, have not been enshrined. Okay? And, and this is very, very concerning as the, the law gets more and more progressive in this, mm-hmm. in this direction. So, um, and that's something that in Bill C-7, uh, I think uh, Garnett, you had on the show previously, Last right? Week, He's yeah. been a really big proponent of conscience rights, bringing that, making sure that uh, doctors who object to this have their rights uh, respected. But that has not been the case. We haven't been able to get the MPs to agree to that. And the College of Physicians uh, and Surgeons of Ontario have actually been, you know, have said and made it very clear that they expect physicians to, in the least, refer patient requesting euthanasia to another party who does not see euthanasia as a as immoral. Okay, so we have to make what we call an effective referral to a, uh, a another party mm-hmm. who may be consenting to this procedure. Okay, mm-hmm. so so um, you know, in my point of view, that is uh, undermining my conscience rights mm-hmm. because I don't think it's in anybody's best interest, certainly not the patient's best interest, for me to refer them to someone else who thinks that euthanasia is moral. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, the College of Physicians has been clear on that. Now there has been attempts from the from many of us conscience and objector objectors to ask the physician community the the college of physicians to change it so that at least there's maybe a self-referral process you know a patient can self-refer themselves to a uh if they really want to go ahead with that okay they can suffer for themselves to a, a maybe a euthanasia a government euthanasia panel who can then come in and do a, another a third-party assessment mm-hmm. um but this has up to this point has been refused and has been, and they haven't gone ahead with that. And I think that would be a very, very, an easy way to assist us and to protect our conscience rights, but they have not done that. So I almost feel there's a little bit of a strong arming of, of uh, physicians in this regard to uh, push us towards uh, either accepting this or maybe taking some consequences. And that's where I'm a little bit scared right now. And a lot of the physicians are scared in our community about the potential consequences of, of not following through with the euthanasia agenda without uh, conscience protection laws in place. Which is so, um, I mean, I can't even imagine being, having to have this conversation over these, these last number of years and continuing to be frustrated, just even in this one small request of like, can we hold on to our moral um, convictions as as medical professionals and then and especially as medical professionals who want to specifically work in this area which is so mm-hmm. frustrating because you you know hearing your heart for people as a doctor wanting to help them you know with palliative care when they're suffering and then knowing that like this kind of requirement from your regulatory body is is a deterrent for other people who have just exactly that passion because mm-hmm. your license mm-hmm. will be on the line you know and so it's like it's so awful to know that doctors good doctors who want to serve are being put in this impossible position mm-hmm. absolutely and i think it's going to be devastating to the palliative care community yeah. the, pal- the right. canadian palliative care society the national canadian Pal- palliative care society has made it very clear that maid should not be included under the under the palliative care definition within the, right. the scope of palliative care. They've made it very clear. And they've also said that conscious rights must be protected. And the national body is very, it has been open and outspoken about this for years now. And the government refuses to even listen to them. Mm-hmm. So this is a very scary time. I've had, uh, as a result, I've had 
colleagues of mine who have either reduced their practice or have left the practice of palliative care, uh, palliative care altogether mm-hmm. because of the concerns that, that we are discussing now. Mm-hmm. Putting in the, wow. Being put in the situation where either they refer someone for euthanasia or they risk uh, suspension or penalization of their practice. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is so, I mean, and that's just so detrimental because I mean, I think what the, what is the statistic? Only 10% of Canadians have access to palliative care. I think it's something like yes. that. It's something like that. It's, it's a very small number. So then you have, if you have physicians leaving, more physicians leaving palliative care, like that's exactly the opposite. And even the government has acknowledged that, that there is a need for palliative care, that they need to increase their palliative care physicians and all of those kind of things. So that's like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's really hard. I just um, want to share this analogy because I think sometimes people hear this, this like refusal for, you know, people, people struggling to to make effective referrals. And why would you struggle with that? Because it, you're not doing it. You're just sending them to somebody else who would, you know? Um, and I, I want to hear maybe your thoughts on that, that Dave, but I use this analogy once because this has also happened in the, on the issue of abortion in various, mm-hmm. not just for medical professionals, but even, um, you know, we've sort of heard of issues about it in campus ministry, like different things like that. And so, um, the analogy that I, that I've used is, is, you know, imagine you have a person who, who believes this self-harm, you know, like cutting themselves or something like this is, is how they can feel better about their situation. And, 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 but they have some kind of struggle to do it in this hypothetical, like they can't do it. They don't have the strength to do it, but they really want it done. And they come to you as, as a, as a person who is part of a team who cares for them in some way, whether it's spiritual other or, or medically or other way. And they ask you to do it. And you say, no, I will not do like, I will do. These are all the other things that I I'm willing to do for you, but that I won't do. I'm not going to hurt you, you know? And then some kind of weird policy requires you to refer them to someone else who's going to hurt them essentially. And mm-hmm. I think people don't, cause people think, you know, it's the patient's request, but they, people don't realize that the request that's being asked of you is to do something that's going to harm another person. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. where the mm-hmm. conscience violation happens. And you, and that in good conscience, you cannot send someone to their harm, you know? Um, Absolutely. And that's a great point, right? And the, the, the core of the argument here is really, you do not believe this is in the best interest of the patient, right? How can you send it to someone, send that person to someone else, who doesn't believe the same because then I'm doing harm to that individual. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and given, you know, you gave the example of, a, of uh, specifically a psych- psychiatric diagnosis of self-harm. There are some rare examples, for example, of, of someone who wishes that they never had an arm, that they wish their arm is not, is a, these are kind of rare oh, disorders, yeah, right, but right. where they, they feel that their arm is not part of them. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a delusional type of disorder. And that they sometimes they will come and they'll ask people to have an amputation. Okay, so uh, obviously, you know, as a physician, I would say, well, that's I don't believe that's in your best interest. Even though that's what you want, I'm going to treat that delusion. Okay, and maybe maybe my treatment doesn't work so well, and the person still asks for that. Would I ever send them to someone who I think you know would say, yeah, yeah, let's amputate the arm? I would never do that because I don't think that's in their best interest, Mm -hmm. right? And I and I think that's ultimately doing harm to that person. Now, a totally different thing from euthanasia. But the, the point is that if I believe as a physician and I'm convicted as a physician that something, some proposed treatment is actually going to do harm to the patient, it would never make sense for me to refer to that patient to someone else who thinks the opposite. It just wouldn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's the same thing that goes for, you know, other things, yeah. you know, yeah, right, yeah. within medicine. Maybe as a, as just a last thought before we get into Godwinks, um, maybe just personally for you, Dave, if you want to share, like, I mean, you have a, you have a, a family, a beautiful wife, hi Robin, and two beautiful kids, you know? Um, and so like for you, how does this kind of personally affect you? Like thinking about your family or, you know, um, supporting them in the future or, um, or even just even just dealing with people who are, who are like seeking death or who are without hope or things like that. Like how, mm, how, mm. how has that kind of affected your heart? And sure, is there anything sure, sure, that people sure. can do like, you know, in a general way to support you and other doctors who, um, who are kind sure. of going through these things? 
sure. That's a good question. Um, you know, there is some research uh, that has come out of the University of Saskatchewan by Dr. Harvey Trachanov, and it's called Dignity Therapy. Mm. And it's something that's been using being used in the, uh, the medical community to help people in the palliative care setting regain a sense of lost dignity, yeah, a mm. sense of lost dignity, because people have that sense of lost dignity when they're maybe their function is impaired because of their, of their illness. Maybe they can't go to the washroom anymore. Maybe they have to wear diapers, right? Maybe they are dependent on others for their basic needs. Their memory is, is, is now uh, not what it was before. Can't remember basic things. And people have a sense of loss of, of dignity. And in this research has come out and, and now has been used in the palliative care world, we really talk to patients about what really at the heart makes their uh, makes them feel dignified makes them makes their life dignified okay mm-hmm. and when we really get down to it you know uh people are talking about so many different things it's not about the function right? it's 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 about who they are as a person what they've what they've uh, done in their life certainly but all the the wonderful things there, there's so many things that people now can rediscover in this in their life that helps to regain that sense of dignity. Mm. Um, you know, maybe they had, they, you know, they uh, had two or three children and, um, and you know, they're so, you know, being able to raise those three children. Uh, you know, there's many, many different things that people forget at the end of life. And part of that dignity therapy is really going deep into those things. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in my experience, and, and especially working with other Christians and, ca- and Catholics, you know, I think that that a most important aspect of dignity is that being a child of God, and nothing can ever take away that from an individual. And uh, and I think, you know, if we can remember that most important and cherish that, and always come back to that, that we're children of God and we share in that in the Christianhood, um, you know, that that is an amazing thing. And, and that's something that I, I always, and I hope I can teach my kids is to always get, go back to that sense of dignity mm-hmm. in relationship to God, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's something that will never change. Uh, whether you have an accident and you, 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 know, you have a disability or you go through a suffering or a mental illness or whatever it is in life, which we'll all go through, right? Mm-hmm. But, but that sense of dignity of, of, uh, that is related to God, I think, is the most important thing to teach our to foster amongst our friends and even in ourselves, of course, mm-hmm. but also in, in our young ones. And so that's hope, you know, I hope that to teach that to my kids. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I answered that question. Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, yeah. maybe if there's anything that you can think of off the top of your head, yeah. um, like what from, from the average, you know, Catholic or Christian yeah. who's not in the medical field. Um, yeah. If there's yes, anything that's we right. Can do anything to do. Mm-hmm. Very practical stuff. I mean, obviously, prayer is very important for us physicians, especially the Catholic physicians who are uh, struggling with this with this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some wonderful organizations that are really, um, you know, defending and really tireless at defending uh, conscience rights and our cause. Uh, I'll name several. Uh, uh, the Canadian Physicians for Life is a fantastic organization, uh, and primarily focuses on medical students, ensuring that medical students know that they have rights as physicians, that there are other physicians uh, uh, that have similar ideas on conscience rights and with maybe pro-life views. And they do a wonderful uh, annual meeting for medical students across the country, and they do many other things as well. So if you can look up their website and, and if you can donate to them, that would be great. Mm-hmm. Uh, other organizations uh, are, um, well, Garnet Jenis, uh, you know, following him and and uh, uh, people like him on the on the politi- political side is very very important, uh, and they're really working tirelessly to to put our cause in Parliament. Going to your MP, of course, is very very important, um, uh, and letting them know your uh, your concerns. Um, the uh, the Catholic Physician Society is also for those Catholics out there. Um, uh, Catholic Physician Society is a national body, and we have uh, 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 smaller chapters at all the different major cities. And we've been working with the uh, Christians, uh, the CMDS, Christian Medical and Dental Society, also a wonderful group of Christians across Canada. 
in the medical and dental field. We're working together with them on this cause and we've been doing that for a long time now. So those two groups, um, prayers for them. And if you feel called for you know, financial donations, that would be greatly welcomed as well. Yeah. 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 And I think just even throwing back to what you're saying, uh, Dave, earlier about the importance of community. Um, so I have my, I'm thinking about my, my 90, almost 92 year old grandmother who lives in Montreal and she's in kind of a, a senior's apartment complex. And, um, and she, a few, a few months ago, I guess she had a, you know, all of them were kind of isolated with, with COVID obviously um, in the situation there. And she had, I guess, a, a friend down the hall who called her one day and was just saying, I'm just so lonely and I can't mm. see my kids and I no one's no one's calling me and I'm lonely and I just want to die. Like I just I just need to die kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so my my grandmother who's um she just was like, Okay, well, how about this? Let's I'm gonna call you every day and we're gonna we're gonna pray together, we're gonna pray for our kids. And I don't think this person, the other, the other woman was a a, a person of faith or anything like that but my grandma was like you know we're, I'm gonna call you every day and we're gonna do this thing and they started doing that and I guess this just brought this so much life and they started to, to each other and they would they would sometimes go and and sort of meet in the hallway six feet apart and things like that you know and uh, so, so it's a thing of okay if you have if a 92 year old can go and bring <laughs> life and hope to someone else you know like who are the people who are in our lives you know, maybe you've got that great aunt who is in long-term care, or I need to do better at this of just even calling my grandparents more often and just, mm-hmm. you know, maintaining that relationship and showing the people, in, you know, who are maybe ill or sick or whatever it is, just, just the gift of time. And it doesn't have to be crazy, right? Like just out mm-hmm. call once in a while can make a big difference. So, um, yeah, just these little things, because it's, you know, I think it's so important to work to, you know, in the political sphere to change laws and protect conscience rights and all of these things. Um, but that's always difficult and who knows what we're going to be able to do. And we want to be hopeful, but, but it's hard to know what's going to, what change is going to actually happen in that sphere, but we can hundred percent always change the culture with our actions, right. And build up this culture of community and support and, um, and, uh, and life and and dignity right for people so um just thinking about what are like what are the small things we can do both in the you know in the like david david saying like even financially supporting like anything in this political sphere but also like yeah in community so yeah oh 100 I, I love that you know just spending time with people affirms their dignity and yeah. sometimes that's the only thing we need to do yeah exactly yeah totally yeah 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 it's true um Wow, that was a really rich discussion. <laughs> Lots of stuff. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you, thank you so much for for joining us. And we're gonna yeah. take the last few minutes here to share our God winks. So I'm gonna pick on Nicole first. Nicole, oh, sure. <laughs> well, my God wink this week is. Um, I was I was thinking about this. I I there was a conversation or a topic that I, I wanted to bring up with somebody. But it was one of those things, and I, I just sometimes struggle to, to know how to bring things up. And I just, I was like, I don't know how to talk about this. I don't know when or how. And I was just like, it's impossible. So I was like, well, I'll just pray. I'll just pray that God will do something so I don't have to, talk, like, he'll just fix it so I don't have to talk about this thing, you know. Um, but this week, I was just, I was having a conversation. And all of a sudden, it was like we were talking about this topic that I needed to talk about. It's like, it just kind of happened. And I just, I felt like it was like, the Lord just being, I don't know, it was just a grace to have that topic come up. And, and then we talked about it and I was just kind of shocked because I was, I was not planning on doing that because I was too afraid. So just grateful for, I guess, I don't know, the Holy Spirit sneakily leading in that way. That's awesome. Yeah. How about you, Rachel? Yeah, I think, um, my God wink this week will be actually a bit vague. I'm going to go with a, with a, a vague one because it's just been a, it's just been a week of, a lot of learning for me, um, about who I am and like the Lord just bring lots of conversations into my life that, um, kind of on the opposite end, maybe of Nicole, instead of it being, instead of like me wanting to have a conversation that was hard, I just have been having a lot of ex- conversations I never expected to have with lots of different people, friends I haven't connected with in a long time, my family, just lots of different people. And all of them have been very illuminative, you know? So Mm -hmm. I just have felt like there's been a lot of light kind of shed Mm -hmm. in, in to my life and things like God is calling me to work on. So 
um, yes, it's a bit vague because a lot of it's very personal, but, um, it's just okay. Mine was vague too. (laughs) I have a very specific one this week. So that's perfect. (laughs) It balances out. How about you, Dave? Do you have a God wink? Well, you know, that's uh, actually, I I never thought about until now when he asked. Um, but, but I think my God wink is, is, uh, actually connected to the topic. Uh, you know, I've been uh, feeling, I kind of mentioned this before to you guys, and, uh, I've been feeling very down about, uh, what's happening in this, in this area. A lot of my colleagues are feeling down about what's happening and we feel, uh, not heard and we feel that people don't care about it. And this is why things are moving forward the way they are. And my God wink is that I got your message, Aaron, and, uh, and that you girls have the, you know, the courage to talk about this and to reach out to people, even when you know, through the, you know, people are so focused on COVID and you're mm-hmm. organizing this and, and letting people know that we still care about this. We still want to move things in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, it really lets me know that, you know, we, we are heard. It lets me know that we have other people affirming us. Uh, and for, for me, that's really a, a God moment. And thank you girls mm-hmm. for, for that. That's beautiful. I love that. Mine sounds crazy after that. <laughs> it's such a beautiful one. Mine has to do with Michael's craft store. Ooh, um, nice. <laughs> because my, so a couple of times a year, a few times a year, whatever, whenever they change seasons, they have these grab bags. So basically they'll just put out something on social media and be like, okay, tomorrow's grab bag day or whatever. And then you go in and they have these massive like bags of just um, I don't know, craft stuff or like whatever. And you can buy up to a cart full, depending on the store. Like one woman went and bought 40 bags of them from wow. a, one Michaels. Yeah. And they're $5 a bag. So hmm. my dad and I went to the one here in Canada and got 10 bags between the two of us of this craft stuff. And it's like, I mean, it's like hundreds of dollars worth of stuff oh, per bag. Yeah. That's and it's still all, happening? Yeah. Can I do that? <laughs> no, it's all done now. <laughs> but but it's like right now it's it's all like Christmas stuff, you know? So whatever. Right. Get, my sister will use it for crafts for next year and da-da-da. But right. there were a few things that were not Christmas things. So one was um, this beautiful watercolor kit, actually. Hmm. It's like a beginner kit. I can even show you here with oh, all nice kinds stuff. of watercolor paints and, you know, That's watercolor awesome. pencils and, you know, <laughs> and normally this kit is I think $40 or something like that. And it was included in a bag with all kinds Mm. of other stuff. So it basically costs nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So I kept it for myself. That didn't go to my sister, (laughs) but I've been wanting to try because I've been doing some acrylic painting. I wanted to try watercolor, but it's like, Oh, I don't want to pay for all of that. What if I don't like painting with watercolor? And then the Lord was like, here you go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So that was fun. Cool. That's beautiful. So very concrete. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. Well, Thank um, you so much. So can, much. I, can I add one thing before we close our episode? Oh, yeah. Just again, I mean, we, we did this at the end of our last episode with Garnet as well, but just to encourage everybody right now, it's very, we're having this conversation because it's really important. And it's also really topical. So all the things that Nicole mentioned, but also all the things that David mentioned, please, you know, if, if you feel motivated at all, find some place that you can act and you can do something. And especially um, if you can, if you have 10 minutes to write a letter to your MP mm-hmm. about conscience rights, about Bill C7, or just sign the no same day death.com petition. Um, you know, we, I just want to give that extra little push mm-hmm. yeah. right now because yeah. right now it matters in a really big way. And so each episode, I think we're going to just encourage you, um, you know, no guilt tripping or anything, but as Catholics, this is a time that injustice is literally happening. And we have the opportunity to speak up whether or not our voice Mm -hmm. will make a difference is in the Lord's hands, but we have that responsibility to actually use our voice. So please, please, please do. Even for those who are like, we have some listeners from the States and other areas of the world. Um, And in many of those areas of the world, there's, there's pushes for, or, or euthanasia is already legalized there. So, um, so, you know, if you're not in Canada, like look what's happening in, you know, in your area and write somebody or call somebody Mm -hmm. and please pray for us. Please pray for Canada right now. Please pray for us. us. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, well, thank everybody ahead of time for for doing that but yeah Dave just a just a big thank you for joining us this week it's been like such a gift to to hear and thanks for everything that you're doing and that you have done you know yeah yeah well thank you girls so much uh you know so many I'm sure so many listeners that listen to you every week 
Is it every week you have your podcast? <laughs> Millions. <laughs> Millions. Yes. yes. Um, it's gonna. Yeah. Gr- it's gonna. Gr- it's gonna grow. I'm sure. That's right. Okay. So with famous. a topic like suffering, you know, it's just- exactly, <laughs> exactly, immediately marketable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Actually, thank you to everybody out there who does listen to us. Exactly. And, yeah. Feel free we really to share do love this you. conversation. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is such an important conversation. So yeah, that's right. Share yeah. it with everyone that you know. Amen. Amen. All right, guys. Well, we'll see you next week. Huh? Yeah. Very right. good. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for joining us for this episode of In the Thicket. If you like what you hear, give us a rating and hit that subscribe button. We have new episodes every Monday with more stories and honest conversations about life when the going gets rough and the hope and humor amidst it all. We'd love for you to join our community on Instagram and Facebook at In the Thicket Podcast. While you're there, let us know how we can pray for you. God bless and see you next week.